Hey, this is Scott Ardella, author of the new book, The Edge of Strength, now available on Amazon, and you're listening to the Ardella Training Podcast, a no-nonsense weekly fitness and performance podcast dedicated to the serious fitness enthusiast, coach, or athlete. Thanks for joining me this week. Let's get started. Hey guys, if you're looking for top-level strength and conditioning equipment and gear, my primary resource is Rogue Fitness. Rogue has exceptional quality kettlebells, bars, plates, sleds, conditioning equipment, home gym racks, apparel, and everything you need to train strong and get results. I've been recommending the kettlebells for a long time, but all the equipment and gear is top-notch. So if you're looking to add equipment or start building your home gym, Rogue is the place to go. Go to ardellotraining.com slash rogue and check out all the great equipment, accessories, and apparel. Again, that's ardellatraining, R-D-E-L-L-A, training.com slash rogue, R-O-G-U-E. All right, guys. Welcome to episode number 164 with my guest this week, elite power lifter and the mad scientist of strength, Chris Duffin. I think you're going to love this interview. I'll tell you all about Chris in just a minute. Before we get into the episode, as usual, I have a couple of quick things. First of all, if you like what we're doing here at the Ardella Training Podcast, please be sure to drop in your review in iTunes. It's fast and easy. And again, these reviews mean a lot to the show. Also, I wanted to mention this. I think that I have uh, forgot to mention this here on the show, but if you'd like a free sample of my book, The Edge of Strength, you can go to ardellatraining.com forward slash edge book, and you can download a free chapter, the uh, table of contents and, and all that kind of stuff. It's, uh, it's a nice sample of what the book is if you haven't checked out my book, The Edge of Strength. So again, you can go to ardellatraining.com forward slash edge book. And by the way, The Edge of Strength is available as a print edition and a Kindle version in Amazon. And uh, this is a, a full book, a comprehensive book, my training philosophy and uh, methodology over decades of training. All right. I wanted to let you know that this interview this week kicks off a great new lineup of amazing guests here on the Ardella Training Podcast. We are really working to take this show to the next level with the best names, the innovators in strength and performance training. And we'll also get into some unique areas and topics as well. You'll see what I mean in the upcoming weeks. All right, let's get ready to get into the interview this week. Let me tell you a few things about Chris. And as usual, there are many questions I didn't even get into in this interview, but we covered so much. Again, I think you're really going to enjoy this one, get a lot of great training perspective out of this interview session, without a doubt. Chris Duffin is known as the mad scientist of strength. I actually asked him why he's called that, and uh, but he is an elite-level powerlifter, the creator of Kabuki Strength, and you're going to hear you know, how to get in touch with him, what he's up to, what he's working on in this interview session. He's an American powerlifter record holder and has an all-time raw with wraps world record with a 881-pound squat at 220 pounds body weight. He has established number one rankings in the world in the squat, deadlift, and powerlifting totals. His numbers are super strength 
level. And if you've read The Edge of Strength, you know exactly what I mean. This is the level of super strength. In addition to his own extreme competitive success, he has been the owner and coach of Kabuki Strength Lab in Portland, Oregon since 2008. Chris approaches powerlifting with a unique level of technical proficiency. You're going to hear about that in this interview. His insight into training has helped many of his students achieve success beyond their expectations. In this interview, you're going to get some amazing new training insight. I guarantee it. And Chris shares a lot. So there's a lot to learn here. So with that, guys, let's do it. Let's get started. Let's jump into the interview this week with the mad scientist of strength, Chris Duffin. All right, guys, Chris Duffin is joining the podcast today. Chris, let me ask you first, how did you get the name the mad scientist of strength? It's an interesting title that uh, got put on me uh, by some people in the industry, right. and uh, that's what people are calling me, and it kind of fits. I'm a tinkerer. Uh, my background is in engineering. You know, that's that whole continuous improvement mindset. That's what I did for a lot of years was was figuring out how to to tinker with and fix companies and processes. And uh, that's what I did as I came around and turned things around. And on the side, I'm constantly, you know, with my gym, making new tools, creating new things, never accepting that, you know, that we've got the right answer. And uh, and it goes beyond just, you know, the, the products tinkering type stuff. But I began over the last few years, several years now, yeah. uh, interacting with some of the best clinical rehab and research professionals in the world. Just uh, fell into that. And in that process, kind of the same thing, uh, you know, happened. I went, you know, what about, as I'd meet these people, what about this or this? And we'd open up discussion on different topics because not a lot of people were applying these concepts to, you know, the in the trenches really strength athletes and strength coaches. It was a lot of, you know, oh, this is how we're dealing with it, you know, an older population or a sedentary population. And here's the rehab methods that we're using. And, you know, the basic human operating fundamentals don't change, but the application does. As I started producing content on this, you know, it's just, uh, you know, here's these coaching cues or a warm-up routine or, you know, a different way of approaching or looking at things. That's where people started calling me that the mad scientist because it was <laughs> these little, small, subtle things that would all of a sudden have a huge impact on people. And, you know, that's where it came from. Well, that's really interesting. Just really briefly, I used to kind of go by the scientist of strength, and that was a name that was given to me by some some friends that – kind of know how I like to stay current on research. And I have, you know, tons of journals and things like that. And uh, guys that, you know, I was training with and, and know my personality, they kind of gave me this name, Scientist of Strength. And it was more of a, of a nerd type uh, <laughs> nickname, but uh, that's really interesting. So I was curious your story, which sounds very different from, from mine. Well, it, 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 it is very similar, though, because that's, you know, I was uh, I am that nerdy lifter. <laughs> right. I'm the guy that graduated valedictorian. I had a full ride through, you know, uh, academic scholarship through college. I had same thing, you know, best graduating engineering GPA, like all that. But I think there's a renaissance of actually, hey, you know, going into the gym isn't just this meathead thing of, you know, pound and weight and row science. Yes. It's really getting very technical, uh, both from nutrition, movement. These, you know, training methodologies. So we're we're incorporating a lot of everything that I promote is all evidence-based practices. Oh, that's awesome. It's from 
you know, training perspectives, movement, all these things are very, like I said, that's why I've been able to form a lot of these relationships with some of the top, you know, clinical rehab minds is because of, I have that approach and that ability to communicate with them in that manner. And so that uh, is pretty much the same thing. (laughs) Now, if you don't mind me asking, who are the rehab uh, professionals and experts that you look up to the most? And then number two, have you had any major injuries that you've had to overcome? Sure. So two of the top areas that I, uh, I steal from or work with has been really a lot of McGill's work. So uh, Dr. Stuart McGill is a friend of mine. And then a lot, we take a lot from the Prague school of medicine. So there's an entire discipline of developmental uh, kinesiology. And that's where a lot of my, my cueing and movement principles come from. And so I know a lot of the top instructors over there at Prague. Those are the two major disciplines, you know, okay. you know, I've interacted with a few of the people, you know, with FMS and stuff like that, but that's the two that align um, most with, you know, the principles that I'm pulling from. Got it. Yeah. I'm a huge, huge fan of uh, Dr. Stuart McGill. As a matter of fact, he was just on the, uh, the podcast recently. Uh, just a, a brilliant man. I'm a guy that I really listen to what he has to say for sure. <laughs> so. so, but the, from the injury perspective, I mean, that is actually, that's what drove me down this path because I, I was a pretty elite level power lifter. Okay. I said, I, you know, my, my job was, you know, doing business turnarounds and stuff like that, but I owned a gym on the side. I was a competitive power lifter and I got to a point where I started having a string of injuries and I was always very technical with my lifts okay. and I kept looking, I'm like, I don't see, see anything that looks wrong with my lift, but there's gotta be something driving like these series of unrelated. And so that's when I started reaching out and trying different people. And I, I got the standard responses from the medical community that went, okay, this is not who I want to engage with until finally I got introduced to the Prague school, the, the DNS stuff. Okay. And as I started exploring that, that's where it all started coming together for me. And it was, you know, made me look beyond making a lift look right technically and actually making all the operating principles of what's going to be going on in the body to make it be in those positions, not the other way around. And uh, that's had a, that had a dramatic impact on both my personal lifting and my coaching as uh and then thus the, you know, kind of where, where I've headed since then. How do you describe your approach to uh, training? I mean, I guess if you had to kind of summarize how you approach training for strength, how do you summarize what it, what it is that you focus on? With uh, specifically just training methodologies. I mean, number one, we want to have, we absolutely, so we must have good, clean movement first before we continue applying and increasing load. So fundamentally, how we perform the lifts, that's really all we focus on in my gym and a lot with the athletes, because a lot of people have different approaches to training. But for my training and then the people that uh, use my coaching services, we have a very, very methodical approach to the training. So I'm going to walk you through a little bit of it. Uh, all right. <laughs> but uh, really, it involves moving around of managing and varying both intensity and volume. And we do this over four-week blocks. Uh, it's one of the more studied approaches. It was what came out of a lot of the uh, Russian research through the 70s and 80s over m- multiple major Olympic cycles. And um, so we take that, but we overlay auto-regulation principles because 
you never know those factors that are going to affect you in life. You know, it might be an argument with the spouse, uh, staying up late with the kids, you know, stressed out from deadlines at work, even bad traffic can have these impact on you. It's all cumulative. It's not just training stressors and training load. Yes. So those factors have to be taken into place. So a lot of people do auto-regulation, but it's all based on subjective feedback. Or, you know, you could use uh, heart rate variability. But again, heart rate variability is post. And so it doesn't tell you what decision do I make today with that weight that I'm putting on the bar. So what we do is we, uh, and there's, as you could guess, there's a lot of research to back up this methodology, but not a lot of people doing it as of yet. But we take, we profile the lift for its velocity. So if you're, if you're a bench presser or a squatter, or you know, it doesn't matter what the lift is, uh, we deal with some Olympic athletes, you basically have a genetic marker for speed for those lifts. It's much like your fingerprint. It's the same shape when you're a baby as you are an adult, but as you've gotten stronger or older, if the shape stays the same, it's just shifted. So basically, we can project your relative max on, at any given day on any warm-up once we know what your profile is. We use a uh, velocity measuring tool. And so anytime we have a client, a new client, we send them the uh, velocity tool. And we measure the velocity, and we develop this curve for each of the key lifts that we want to monitor with them. So that then we can have a parameter of if we expect them to be doing, because again, we're managing intensity and volume, right. if we've got a certain set and rep range that we want them to doing at, like, let's say, 80%, we actually know what that 80% is that day based okay. on their speed. So we don't use the velocity device to work on explosive strength development or anything like that. It is a marker that allows you to go, oh, I'm progressing ahead of plan on my deadlift. Oh, on my overhead press day, you know, I'm not fully recovered this week or those other stressors added up. I need to drop 10 pounds off my training weights today so that we don't push past it. Usually we find with using these objective measures over the subjective for auto-regulation principles is we find that a lot of people are leaving stuff on the table. They're pushing themselves and going ah, to the point where they think it's enough or they might be on the verge. But when we actually look at the data, we're able to get a lot more out of our clients by putting this in place because it's, we find that a lot, people usually have more in the tank than they think. When you actually look at the data, maybe we can hit us that extra set of rep. Maybe we can add that five pounds that we weren't anticipating or didn't know that we had that day. So we don't leave anything on the plate. So anyway, that's the long and short of, you know, our training methods that I use for myself and uh, uh, with our clients that use our services. Now, now, this is all done in the in the live setting, right? In the gym? Yes. So you've got your workout. So we'll write the, we look at like an annual training cycle. So we're not looking at, oh, here's an eight-week cycle, repeat that eight-week cycle. You've got to understand, you know, what's the overall athletic development plan for the athlete? Where's their competitions? Where's their vacations? How does this fit in? Then you've got your micro cycles that you plan and write out with that four-week blocks of modulating intensity and volume. And then in the workout, so this is, we have clients all around the world. In the workout, the client is monitoring the speed of their warmups and their work sets. And then that's where they apply. They've got a decision tree. It's very simple. Whether they go with the planned weights or either increase or decrease it as if me or one of my coaches were in the room with them calling the weights for them because they have the data and know how to use that. Got it. I, so, yeah. So, so that was my question. So the, this is not something you do just locally in your gym. Like you're working 
with clients all over the world virtually doing this. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. So it's really cool. That's why we call it virtual coaching because it's we empower the client and give them the tools like they had that elite level coach in the gym with them. So, you know, it takes a lot, you know, and we review video for movement and all the other stuff. But it's to me, if you're going to do something, you need to do it right that delivers results. And uh, so most of our clients are actually people that are trainers or actually advise gyms or, you know, any of that stuff. They're, they're people that are in the industry that are trying to take their, their knowledge and their, their training to the next level. Now, how long do people typically work with you with this type of uh, training? Good question. I've, <laughs> I've only had a couple clients ever uh, at this point that have actually, have actually ended their services. So most everybody just continues. So how's that for an answer? I don't wow. know because they're, wow. <laughs> yeah, they're, they decide to keep on using our services. <laughs> nice. Well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And again, so what are their typical training goals? Are these athletes? So you said they're fitness professionals, people that are in the industry. Are they training for athletic competitions and things like that? It depends. So usually strength athletes uh, that are competing at some level, but not always. You know, we may have, you know, a CEO of a company that is just, you know, he likes training and but he's run into a lot of injuries and other stuff. And, you know, he's trying to work through that or could be a kid in India that just wants to. It just varies. It really does. A lot of them are, you know, powerlifting or strongman-ish focused with their training style. That's because that's what I do. So that's where a lot of people that have done research, but they may or may not be actually competitive. A lot of people that have, you know, dealt with a lot of injuries and stuff like that. We often get those as our clientele just because of the movement coaching and the specific planning that we do around fixing movement patterns, postural type stuff. Um, that's a big part of our training. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your training right now. So I'm curious, are you training for a uh, competition or anything like that currently? I'm not sure. <laughs> so <laughs> right. I just recently made, I've been chasing a big record in a, uh, a weight class that I've kind of outgrown. All right. And I just made, I said, I'm going to take one last shot at this. And I just did that uh, two weeks ago and my weight cut didn't go as well as I'd hoped. And I ended up having some uh, bloat issues on my hands and I, I ended up bombing out on the deadlift. Every, the meat was going really well. I was, my numbers were looking good, but my hands were so swollen up from recomping from the weight cut that uh, I couldn't hang on to the bar. So now I'm kind of reevaluating where I'm going to go. Okay. Um, I'm planning on competing uh, later this year, probably this fall. But at the moment, I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do. I need to figure out, you know, what weight class I'm going to step into. Um, I might move up one or even two weight classes. At this point, I'm in the post. You know, I just finished a meet. Everything, the training plan went uh, as well as it could. I felt good at the meet. All my numbers were where they should be. But I had some uh, other issues pop in. And now I'm just kind of in the, uh, you know, that thoughtful, that thoughtful phase. <laughs> <laughs> of going, okay, what's the path forward now at this point? So, What was your recent weight class, Chris? The one I just competed in was 220. 220, okay. So you've had some really big numbers. You know, I was looking at uh, the website and some of, the, um, some of your accomplishments, which are amazing. I'm wondering, what do you attribute your success as an elite level power lifter? I mean, is there one thing that you attribute to the success that you've had? I speak to this a lot, but it's, it's really you know, having that long-term vision, you know, really believing in yourself, but having a plan. Like uh, a lot of people are dreamers. They, you know, they get into stuff 
They want to see quick results. It happens for a while, then they quit. I've been training him for 25 years. And I knew a long time ago that I wanted to be world-class. I didn't speak to it then because people probably would have laughed at me then. Along that path, it's, it's a lot of hard work. It doesn't happen in year one. It doesn't happen in year two. And you can't get disheartened about that. You've got to put in the work. You've got to know that there's going to be long periods. There's going to be troubles. There's going to be setbacks. And every time it happens, yeah. you've got to sit down and you've got to figure out a plan, just like I'm doing right now. And <laughs> right. It's part of the process. You know, right. It's yeah. not all going to go to plan. And, you know, you, you, you can't let those small things, the, you know, today, you know, the issues that you're facing get in, in the way. And, uh, you know, so much of where people are going in this world today is, you know, that instant gratification. You know, yeah, you can have some instant gratification by, oh, let's go on a diet and lose five or 10 pounds. But, you know, if you're wanting to make dramatic change over time, it, it takes time and work. That, it's just that, that simple. And you got to be willing to do that and have a plan and commit to it. I've heard you talk about vision before, and I really wanted to ask you this, but what advice do you have for people to really better identify, like to get really clear on their vision? Is there anything that you can say to maybe help people to get more clear on that? I think people need to take some time and really evaluate their life as a whole because you, what you see is people jumping from one exciting thing to the next exciting thing. So I want to get in shape and they'll do it for six months when reality, you know, it was just like they saw somebody do something or something and then got excited about it. But really, you know, they haven't thought through that you know, this means I'm going to be training for two hours a day for four days a week for the next 15 years. You know, how does, how does that fit into what I want to do and what I want to accomplish in life? Right. So you've got to understand too many people try to do too many things and they get too task oriented. You know, it's like, Oh, I've got to do all of a sudden, you know, watching a show as part of their schedule for the day. And that doesn't feed into any, any, any of these goals. So people really need to Understand what are the priorities and you've got to have that and establish that before you start going, this is something I really want to do. Then from there, you can start creating a vision of what you, what you want to be. Who do you want to be? That's really what you've got to understand. Who is that person? What do I want to be 20 years from now? What does that look like? That's a big question. And no, it does, (laughs) it it does change over time. I'll admit that to some level, but you know, it's not jumping from one flighty thing that catches your fancy to the next in our, you know, our shortest tension span world that we live in today. Let me ask you, how has strength and how has your vision guided you in life? Because as as I understand, you, you've overcome some major life challenges, some major adversities. How has your vision and how has strength specifically kind of carried over into all areas of life and improved your life? Strength training itself is practice for life. And it's, you know, knowing what you're capable of and performing that is strength. And that's way more than just, oh, I'm going to go into the gym and do some curls. We're talking about, you know, emotional strength, uh, spiritual strength, being that person that people can lean on and know that, you know, if they're in tough times, you know, they can come to you for, for advice. You're going to be, you're going to be that pillar. You're going to be solid, you know, and that's to me, it's strength is everything, but we're talking about a lot more than physical strength. Physical strength is just a manifestation of those values right. put into your training. If you have those values and you live that life and you put those into your training, 
you're going to have that, you know, that, that result of that uh, physical strength, but it comes down to the, the base fundamental is much more than that. And yeah, I mean, I, my life has been covered a very broad scope, of a lot more <laughs> than what most people will ever, ever experience in their life. And, uh, that's the thing. I mean, even at a young age, I had a huge impact on my family by, by that manner. I mean, it was, you wouldn't want me to go into that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I do. I think it's really, uh, really powerful stuff. So, so I, I grew up basically homeless and we lived in, lived in the woods, kind of foraging for food, that sort of stuff. There was, there was a lot of, uh, drug problems at home as well. Uh, as kids, we were removed for a while and put into foster care and, when I went through through high school, you know, I was working and putting, you know, money on the table to help feed the family. And when I left, it was things got worse. You know, there wasn't to some level I was having a, a positive impact on the family. Things got really bad. I had three younger sisters so while I was in college. I ended up taking custody uh, at various points for all three of my my younger sisters. And I ended up raising all of them uh, through their teenage years while I worked on my engineering degrees, my master, my MBA, all that stuff, and was working my professional career as well. That's what I talk about, you know, strength. You've got to be that person that people can know that is always going to be that solid pillar. Who do you turn to? And maybe for me is I had no one to turn to. So there was no, there was no option. There was no fallback plan in my life. There wasn't even a a couch at home I'd get to stay on if, uh, if I, you know, if I didn't have a job and couldn't pay the rent for, you know, for a month, there, there was nothing. And, uh, so maybe part of that, you know, forced that upon me, but a lot of times, and this comes back to that discussion on vision. I mean, you don't have to have those, those tough times to, to to make you who you are. Cause you actually see a lot of it actually work in reverse of that, but it is understanding that you create who you are, not this, I'm a sum of my experiences. You ask somebody who they are and they'll tell you about the experiences they've been through that made them who they are or, oh, this difficult, you know, marriage and breakup I had or, you know, the tough time growing up or, oh, my, my parents were miserable. And so that's really created who I am. Right. That, that, that's just not the case. You can't, <laughs> your experiences don't change the fact that you get to decide and create who you are, you know? Right. I love that. And, I love that. and that's, uh, I think I'm way off topic of the strength piece here, but you know, that's <laughs> <laughs> not really because it's all encompassing. I mean, it really, it's all, it's all encompassing. So yeah. it doesn't matter. You don't need to, you know, grow up homeless like I did, you know, you don't need to, to do the things that I did, but you just got to, you've got to make the choice right. to, Chris, to live that life. What was the thing that turned it around for you? I mean, when you look back, so where you are today, being very successful athlete, coach, doing a lot of great things in the industry, what was the thing that, that turned it around? Is, is there an incident or a day that you can look back on and say, man, this is when things change for me, dealing with all the things I was dealing with? No, there is not. And there never will be. It is slow small incremental steps over time that take you such a long period of time that when some, the opportunity does come around, this, this is something my mom said to me when I was, when I think I was still in high school and she looked at me and she says, you make life look so easy (laughs) in life. Life, life isn't easy. It's hard. And it was cause you know, it just looks like the right things always happen to me, but, 
it's all these little tiny steps every day when you know where you want to be that it feels like you're making no progress, that there's no big turning point, that there's none of this that happens, that when the right things do happen, it just, you know, it looks like it's accident or luck or, you know, whatever you call it on. But, you know, there was this tree of different, different opportunities that you created for yourself. And one of them finally was available to you. So you ran down that path and it, and it looked like luck to everybody else. Well, you know, that kind of aligns with a, a really powerful quote that I heard, and I, I've used this quote before, but life is easy if you live it the hard way and hard if you live it the easy way. And I think that's kind of similar to what you're saying. And it's just, it's a process. So, yep, it is. Yeah. I wonder if you could also talk a little bit about uh, your background. So you went from corporate executive to, again, where you are today, elite strength athlete coach. How did that transition occur? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it looks like it happened really fast, but it did happen over a, a pretty long period of time. So like I said, I've got uh, an MBA. My expertise was in engineering, although I never really was an engineer. And my work was really about leadership. It was about leading people in creating, you know, lasting change in organizations. So I, I was pretty successful in my career early on, you know, doing management stuff and I kept advancing. And next thing you know, like in our area, I became, you know, a go-to guy when a company was having problems, they'd bring me in to, you know, be their general manager, director of operations, whatever it was to turn around. I'd basically be responsible for all operations and turn around the company or the division or what have you. That was my job. And there was a few times I actually was in a position where I'd get a company turned around and ready to like sell. And I'd try to be in that position to, to do that. And it never quite happened. And I'm like, man, I'm just you know, making all these people lots of money. In the end, I do like my job. I love it because I'm, I'm leading, I'm helping people change their lives, do things they never thought possible. Yes. And that was great. But at the same time, I, you know, as an athlete, I own my gym on the side and I really found that, wow, that gave me so much more because I could do the same things. I could impact people's personal and career lives, but also make them healthier and better and have a, this more fuller impact on people. And that is just something I, I was more passionate about. Like my, yeah. my leadership experience was, was a small subset of what I love doing. But actually, the the coaching and the you know the being a strength coach and helping people with the movement and all of that was was so much more powerful. I considered going back to school for so for a number of years. I was going to go back and uh, become a doctor, and that was that was my plan for a long time. But I couldn't. I, I basically just couldn't run the numbers. Like I made good money in my career, right? And taking the time off, sure, that's a big sacrifice yeah. from that and the cost of you know. They, I say, well, you should do what you're passionate about. You should go do it. Just do it. You know, that's the standard logic that everybody applies. But I'm like, no, this is like, this is like a million dollar decision <laughs> that I would, that I would be asking my family to compromise on yeah. their quality of life for me to do what I, what I enjoy. And to me, that's just not the right thing to do, no matter what the, you know, the common public, uh, perception of that is. So, so I kept doing that and then owning the gym. And then, like I said, I started interacting and building these relationships and developing this methodology and starting publishing a lot of free content, mostly because I, I got so frustrated with the, the utter crap that was on the market or the, in the way that people were teaching people, you know, these basic movements of squatting and deadlifting. And it was just, it became infuriating to me. I'm like, I'm going to just start putting stuff out there. So it started with me just taken because I was a really busy person at the time, I would just hand my cell phone to somebody at the gym. And when I 
you had a coaching moment, which I did at the gyms, you know, I'd pull people aside and say, boom, and I'd cover a topic for like five or 10 minutes and I'd film it and post it to YouTube off right off my phone. And next thing you know, I started having all these people following me next thing, you know, I've got like, you know, all these college strength coaches and oh, next thing, you know, a professional, you know, professional football and baseball strength coaches following me. And, oh, next thing you know, I've got doctors like, you know, like following my, my work, right, you know, put right. that in quotation marks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, awesome. so from there, that helped develop the credibility that I started getting these introductions to the, actually basically the people writing the materials like Astu McGill, Craig Liebenson, uh, the prog instructors. And that's where... I was able to take my knowledge and their knowledge to the next level as we could actually start having some, you know, open discourse on these subjects and, and uh, advancing the conversation further. Then it just got to a point where not even a year ago, where it was just too much. I had so much other stuff going on outside of my professional career. And I'm just like, I don't have the time to, to have that professional career anymore. It's time to, to make the move and uh, chase my life's passion. So, Was it hard that, to do that at all? Was there anything hard about that decision? Or was it the timing was right and it was a, a clean break? You know, it was, it was scary. Uh, I'll have to say that. You know, walking away from, a, you know, a nearly two-decade career, extremely successful at, and as, you know, we've talked about in my life, I've never been one for really taking on big risk. You know, there have always been good, sure, sound moves because, you know, just that ingrained sense of there is no fallback plan, right? So if you think about that, you know, it was a scary move, but I'll tell you what, I'll never go back. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> the, the people that I'm reaching around the world now and the impact that I'm having, it's just so rewarding. Congratulations. It sounds like everything is moving in the right direction for you. So, and that can be a tough thing to do. So you did mention the squat and the deadlift. I wonder if um, we could talk a little tactical advice here. I'm wondering with all your experience, what would you say are the most common mistakes? Probably several mistakes we could talk about, but if you had to say one most common mistake with the squat, what would that be? And then also with the deadlift, what would that be? With the squat is people having uh, arching their back and putting their chest up, which is basically what everybody teaches. So arch that back, chest up. And that right there breaks the kinetic chain down. Uh, we don't have quality uh, intra-abdominal pressurization. We don't have good connection of the hip uh, into that IAP, which is our core. And uh, we also lose the breakdown of the shoulder. And uh, into that, we create a sponge in that medium. It causes uh, what we call neural downregulation. I could go through the safety pack why this actually ends up with people being rounded over in the squat and the increases in back trauma from from uh, training under load with flexion because they're it's funny people what's well, like oh well I, I lost it on heavy I just got to do it even more but it's actually the thing that's driving them to to break down and bend over in the squat outside of that it actually decreases the load that they can handle so and can drive pain all over the place from you know knees ankles hips shoulders elbows. You know, a lot of this uh, will all come from that if we lose if we lose the core to begin with. So on the deadlift, a lot of people want to to lift the weight because it is a dead lift, and really it is a wedge. I mean, all the lifts are a wedge. The squat, you don't have to think about it so much because you're just wedged under the weight. But uh, you've got to be able to create tension and then basically wedge the hips through to complete the lift. And it's a uh, you know I cover this on a bunch of videos on my 
a movement website, kabuki.ms, where we walk through kind of all these coach. I mean, I've got over a hundred different coaching videos on there and more added every week, but uh, no, those fundamental changes can have a pretty significant uh, impact, but you see it all the time. The website again, uh, kabuki.ms, you said? Kabuki Movement Systems, kabuki.ms, just released a week ago. So something I'm really proud of, I've been working on it for quite some time because uh, a lot of people are aware of my, all my free YouTube content, but I quit publishing like a lot of really in-depth content on there about a year ago or maybe longer because the platform just doesn't, I needed something with the taxonomy of making it indexable, searchable, comments, being able to set things up in guided tutorials. Like I basically had to have a, a website built from scratch so that I could make this really clean, nice interface to actually guide people through it instead of just like posting a bunch of videos. Right. What's the coaching cue that you like best for the optimal spine position? Is there a coaching cue? There is several. So <laughs> it depends. It depends <laughs> on the athlete and what, uh, what they respond to best. So the big thing that we try to do is, so there's a lot of different cues. You want to use the least number of cues possible. You don't want 20 things to think about. You want two or three things think, to think about. So you've got to find like the best one that works, uh, which is why we have several different approaches a lot of times to these. But the best spinal position, you've basically got to learn how to use the create proper intradominal pressurization, which is done through the opposition of the diaphragm to the pelvic floor. And then that working against the outer shell of abdominal wall to create that pressure. So a lot of people think it's the air. They get confused that you're, you know, you're trying to create air to create pressure, which is, which is not the, not the case. It is the working of the, the IAP created from that, that diaphragm to the uh, pelvic floor working against that outer abdominal sheath. So I can't talk through <laughs> right, this, right. the coaching cues, because they are visual cues. So it basically, I, I need to point and be able to show people where to inflate things to happen. So this is why so much of my content is video because I, they are not audio only content. It right. doesn't work. You need to be able to see it. I got it. Yep. I got That's it. why I don't cover it in articles and stuff like that. It, you have to see it. I wonder if you can talk about the, uh, the six month rule. I thought this was pretty interesting. So can you describe <laughs> that for the audience? <laughs> so Scott, since you're in the industry, I know you totally get this, <laughs> but you you constantly see, you know, all these people that get infatuated with a new tool or a new diet method. Yeah. Oh, I'm going on the zero carb diet, everybody. And they preach about it and they post it on Instagram and Facebook and so on. And, and then a couple months later, you notice they're not posting about it anymore. Let's say it's the, you know, I'm, I'm full keto for life. You know, it's the thing that's going to happen. And then, you know, you get on Instagram and see that, oh, they're posting some meals. That doesn't look like there's no carbs in it, you know? Same thing with like, oh, this new movement, this, you know, thing, everybody's got to be doing it. A few months later, they're not doing it. And it's because we all get this shiny, shiny object uh, syndrome. You know, we all get excited about new things. This is human nature. You know who we are, sure, right? I mean, sure. it's, it's, oh, look at this, look at this shiny object. Let's play with it. Let's see what it does. Let's, <laughs> we get all excited. We all do it. There's no one that doesn't do this. So the six month rule is, you know, I don't promote products, methods, talk about things like I, I post my training logs and people will see videos of like me doing different things and they'll say, well, what is that? Can you tell me what it, you know, 
should I incorporate that? (laughs) I don't know. I'm testing it yet. (laughs) Like I like it right now, but if I'm not doing it in six months, it's not worth my time investing to do it still clearly wasn't worth my time that I, that I invested in it. So I've dropped it from the program. And so you've got to, you've got to have some sort of, you know, process. Mine's the six month rule, but honestly, it's longer. (laughs) I mean, most of the products I put to the market have been things that I developed five or six years ago. Okay. That's the key thing. And do you see this in the fitness industry? Oh yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. And people also want to have something to to talk about and promote. So they, they actually, in the fitness industry, it's even worse because people seek these things out so that they can have some unique feature, tool, movement thing to do and talk about it and write about it and blog post about it. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, they're not doing it later. So they spent all this time trying to convince people to do something <laughs> really in the end that yeah. <laughs> provided them no value. Right. But it starts leading the other people down this path. And next thing you know, everybody's putting butter in their coffee, you know, and uh, <laughs> millions of people are talking about it. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Well, all right. So here's a follow-up question. Now we're going to go complete 180, okay, because we're talking about shiny object syndrome and getting distracted with toys and things like that. But I actually want to ask you about the shoulder rock, right? So, okay. so two of my personal areas of interest in, in training is spine and shoulder. And uh, I'm a huge advocate of using the kettlebell in certain exercises as a, as a rehab tool. I think it's very effective compared to what I used to do as a physical therapist. I used to be a physical therapist and we used to do a lot of exercise with tubing and things like that. Since discovering kettlebells, I think it's a very valuable shoulder strengthening device that, you know, you don't have to press, but that, you know, the get-ups and arm bars and other mm-hmm. things are very effective. So I recently came across your shoulder rock and uh, not to, you know, go in the shiny object syndrome thing, but I, I do want to hear about Wait, it. It can't be that shiny of an object. Cause I think it's been around for about 400 years or so. <laughs> so this is older than the kettlebell, oldest strength training tools there is. Yeah. And uh, it's a modern take on it. And then my coaching and cueing is based off of the same DNS principles of core stabilization okay. and developmental kinesiology, which is great for a shoulder and spine health. So I can see why you're, you're interested in it. I developed this maybe like five years ago. So I was doing at the time a lot of the DNS work, kettlebell work, but I was ended up spending so much time doing my preparatory work um, that it was cutting into my work out. And so it wasn't doing me a whole lot of value when I was spending, you know, I've got two hours to train and I spent 45 minutes of it prepping. So I'm like, I tried mace swinging like maybe 10 years ago. Okay. And when I tried it, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a fun stuff. This will be cool. It's going to be great for my shoulders and get conditioning in. And so I watched some YouTube videos on how to do it. Got some maces, swung them around. My wrists hurt. My elbows hurt. My shoulders hurt. And I quit doing it. Okay. And uh, then, like I said, five years ago, I was doing a lot of stuff, having really good success with the, uh, some of the DNS stuff and kettlebell work. And, uh, I decided, you know what, I'm going to take these same principles, these DNS principles of core stabilization and refine how I was doing the swing based on watching those YouTube videos and make my own, you know, coaching, cueing kind of strategy for it. So I started playing around with it. And I'm, a, I'm a bench presser. You know, I'm a 500 pound bench presser. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but a lot of us have some pretty messed up shoulders. <laughs> you know, the kind that let's say 
ache every night. You can't fall asleep, which was my case for the eight years leading up to this. And uh, three weeks in, shoulder pain was gone, just gone. And I'm like, ooh, all right. All right, that's that's good. Let me, uh, hey, hey, Jeff over here, another 500-pound bencher. Your shoulders hurt, don't they? Yep, every day. Here, let me teach you to do this. So he started playing around with it, and uh, same effect. He came back like three weeks later. He's like, shoulder pain's gone, man. So we kept working through this process. So I had these in the gym, okay. but I had them loadable because when I looked at the devices that were available, so this was the other problem. Uh, he asked me what's the difference between a mace bell or some of the other stuff. Right. All the stuff on the market is designed incorrectly. It is not the classical GATA. So actually GATA is the tool that's been around for for the 400 years or longer for all I know. Okay. Kind of created this, this shorter product. You could buy it from a bunch of companies, which doesn't have the right levers, doesn't put the weight as it swings in the right spot. There is a very specific place the weight's going to be. It needs to be right behind the knees at the back of the swing. So there's there's a length of what the product's supposed to be. And everybody sells it the wrong length because they don't know. They just know, oh, here's this weight on a stick. Let's sell it. And uh, I think the primary reason that it's, that everybody's selling them shorter is you don't have to have as many. You only need a couple because uh, because uh, you reduce the lever. So there's left, less differential. So I created a product that was loadable in my gym. Finally ended up creating it in such a fashion that we reduced all risk of having a weight ever come off while you're swinging it. So in my gym, I felt safe, but it wasn't a product I was going to take to market until we had that and didn't compromise on any other features. Um, so I was able to maximize, get the handle the right length, have the right, uh, we added knurling. Just, it's a modern take. It makes it much, it's the really nicely done device that loads with standard weights in the gym. We also send the the video on the coaching sequence you know it's a step-by-step basically assessment you know so that you know whether you can advance to the next steps uh assessment and coaching method video that goes with the shoulder rocks because to me it's it's content and the product because uh you look at a lot of the companies out there that sell maces and they've got basically people doing like mace aerobics, I guess is the best thing I think <laughs> I can call it. But it's like they have these random things so that they can show you, oh, look, it's a great tool you can do all this stuff with. And it's completely like just random and there's no really value in the content at all. And they don't teach people actually how to do a, the proper swing that's going to actually provide some value and benefit. So how long do you spend uh, using the tool? And is this something you use standard in your training? Is this part of your pre-movement prep training stuff or where, where do you use it? Uh, it's really versatile. Okay. So I typically do it. Most of my people in my gym do this uh, pre-workout. Uh, we'll do like three sets of 10 per side. It usually takes maybe like two minutes. So it's, it's a pretty limited length of time that yields some really tremendous benefits. I recommend three times a week. You know, I'm sure, you know, you being, uh, you know, the background that you have, you're pretty familiar with if you assign people some prep work or some some movement work. Usually when you follow up with them a few weeks later, they, they go, well, I kind of forgot or <laughs> no, I've only been doing it once a week. I just haven't been able to work it in. Sure. This one is the only time I, I'll say people I want you to do three sets of 10, three times a week and follow up and they'll be like, dude, I'm doing it like every day. <laughs> at least five days a week. I love it because it just it. feels yeah. so good. Yeah. I'm like, I get that response all the time. And I, I love it because it's, I mean, that tells you something right there. 
And, uh, but you can do it post-workout. You can do it on off days. So, so there's a little bit of, in, in how we teach it, there's a little bit of developmental kinesiology going on. So there's almost a, what we call a developmental reset. So if you've done some damage, like in your, your bench training, where you've disconnected, you know, the shoulder from the core and how it's operating, you can kind of mitigate that damage post-workout, or you could try to get things in a better position beforehand. You can do it on, on your off days, same thing, but we, we don't do it for condition. Like we don't do it for maximal weight. We don't do it for maximal length of time for conditioning work or things like that. Cause we don't want to get into a point where we're performing it poorly. Quality of motion is king. And uh, so that's something we, we, we ingrain. And is this recommended even for normal, healthy shoulders? So assuming no mobility issues or anything like that? Absolutely. So a lot of people think of this as a shoulder mobility tool. Right. Well, what, uh, you know, and, and they forget that, yes, it does. It's a shoulder strengthening and stabilizing tool. Okay. If, but if you've got a strong stabilized shoulder, what's the output? Improved mobility. And, uh, but we have people with, you know, basically a sloppy shoulder and it'll help, you know, their night and day difference between when they use it before they bench them when they don't okay. for a lot of different things because it's basically strengthening and stabilizing the shoulder and the output of that is people with mobility issues in the shoulder it improves that it's a tremendous tool in that fact well cool you know the I mean, outputs of it and the and the and the uh, versatility of when you can use the tool it's it's incredible excellent and again you know not that we're advocating you know shiny object syndrome and i'm really big on you know, understand everything you do, you know, understand the why behind using anything, any program, you know, thanks for sharing this. I really quite honestly did not know that much about it. So uh, where can people go to, to learn more about it and understand the why? Kabukistrength.com. Okay. So if they go there, you'll find the, go click on the shoulder rock on the product page. You'll find a bunch of videos. You'll see me presenting it actually to audiences of 30, 50 doctors. It's used in numerous uh, physical therapy clinics, uh, numerous chiropractic clinics. It's used by multiple professional uh, baseball teams. I couldn't tell you how many college uh, football and, and baseball teams use it. Uh, we've got cricket players. We've got U.S. Olympic Committee uh, uses it. We've got uh, competitive athletes, throwing athletes in track and field uh, that compete in the Olympics that use it. I think that's a pretty good list for launching it a year ago, don't you think? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> so, yeah. so, because it's the word of mouth, it works. Well, one last question about this, and then we'll move on to a couple other things here, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. How does this differ? And I think I know, but I just want you to touch on it from Indian clubs, for example. Yep. So Indian clubs are great. We've had Ed Thomas out here, who's uh, kind of the Indian club guy, Dr. Yeah. Ed Thomas. Yeah, yeah. It's a different tool. There's a, the longer lever creates the power. You know, you have to, if the weight's too light or you don't have the lever, it doesn't cue you to do a couple things. And this is very critical. It doesn't teach you to relax. So it doesn't teach you to basically pulse, which is very athletic. It is that when do you fire? When do you relax? When do you fire? When do you relax? So you can basically imagine if I gave you a long PVC stick with no weight on the end and said, swing it around like a mace. There's never a time where you actually relax 
and let the weight like eccentrically open and move you. And then boom, now I've got to forcibly stabilize because I've got this big weight on a lever that's way out there. So it is a very different tool and experience than, uh, than the Indian clubs. We have Indian clubs here. We've been trained by, uh, Dr. Ed Thomas. We use them, Yeah, he's fantastic. Um, but this is a different tool and provides different benefits. Got it. Thanks for clarifying that. Cause I, I know that the audience here would want to know how this is different. Cause we've done a couple of, uh, podcasts around Indian clubs. And I was actually even fortunate to, to interview Dr. Ed Thomas, uh, some time ago. So. Excellent. Excellent. So tell me about uh, the uh, the seminars that you have going on. As I understand it, you guys only do a, a few seminars. You only do a few seminars a year. And um, did I see that you're coming to to Florida in 2016? I am. Florida's <laughs> the only venue. I haven't actually booked the location yet okay. but because um, it's in December. But, yeah, we, we do four seminars a year. It's a, a two days. I come out with a bunch of my coaching staff. And we walk through the Kabuki Movement Systems principles, which is uh, it's basically using these core loaded movements as both a, an assessment tool, a corrective tool, so that you can basically identify these deviant movement patterns. I don't need to have you do, you know, uh, the FMS seven, do a you know single leg loop bridge, and do an overhead, you know, do an overhead uh, squat to find out that oh, you've got shoulder mobility issues or this glute isn't firing. If you know what to look for, you can actually find it in those core movements and fix it. And oftentimes, if you're doing that, then you can actually cue it and fix it in a much better fashion because using things under heavy load brings out some issues that you may not be aware of. I can make a single leg loop bridge look beautiful because it's a remedial movement. It's a remedial movement. (laughs) When I've got 95% of my squat and I can take somebody that's an FMS expert or, you know, a DNS expert or any of these and I can show them that, look, nope, you're not doing what you've been saying and teaching people to do. And the light bulb turns on for them because they, they finally, and then they learn to, to cue that. Uh, at the same time, we do teach a lot of corrective movements that are based, a lot of the, those same evidence-based corrective movements. But there are different, a little bit different takes on them and how they're set up, how they're performed, what's cued. But wherever possible, we try not to have regressions. It's a focus on progressions. Um, so it's a, it's pretty in-depth. I, I usually have a pretty solid audience of uh, uh, DPTs and DCs in the audience as well. A lot of strength coaches and people. But I, I, I get people just getting into the sport of lifting. They say, you know, well, should I attend this? And I'm, yes, because, I mean, what <laughs> right. better way to start than actually learn to do all this stuff correctly up front? So we offer a certification with it that for people that are on our kabuki.ms site that want to take things further with someone that's been through the seminar and been qualified and approved to train with our methods. So that's part of the uh, the seminar series is uh, it allows you to get certified if you choose and be one of our, our listed uh, people for the KMS principles. We only do four a year, uh, like you said, so not many. Uh, we don't come to, if you want to have one at your gym, you don't get just, just call up and say, Hey, I'd like you to come out to my gym. (laughs) Here's the schedule. (laughs) Um, because there's a lot of setup involved with it. We've got numerous coaches and, uh, that's how we operate. Nice. And this is a two day seminar, Uh, two day seminar online access to the KMS website for three months, uh, with it as well. So that you can have ongoing discussion. All right. Well, we are uh, winding down here. Um, anything else you'd like to mention to listeners about uh, what you have going on before my uh, final two questions? I'd just like to, you know, promote that uh, Kabuki.ms site. It's a uh, it's a great resource. I mean, it is basically my life's work and my passion. But also to check out, we've got the shoulder rock, we've got specialty bars, we've got all sorts of stuff on our on our website that are 
basically things to help you move and live better through strength training, uh, which is, like I said, that's my passion is to, to teach people how to do that and provide them the tools to do so. So kabukistrength.com. A uh, question I'd like to ask uh, most of the guests here is what, what's the book that you recommend the most to others and why? And this doesn't have to be training related. It can be any area of life. Is okay. There... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to recommend a book that's uh, way outside the scope of training almost. Okay. It's called The Way of Men. Uh, by Jack Donovan. So it is, uh, if we talk about those uh, pillars of strength or values, there's a lot of stuff in there. Jack is a good friend of mine. It is, I think, the the definitive book on basically masculinity in uh, this day and age, which doesn't get to be redefined. It is what it is. That's good to know. I, I'm not aware of this book. I've never heard about it before, but I will definitely check it out. So thanks for sharing that. And then the, uh, the final question, what's the one thing that you'd like everybody to take away from the interview today? What's something that they can actually take action with as they wind down? I think people, the takeaway is getting back to some of the fundamental discussions that, uh, that we had early in this interview. People need to take a look at their life and their priorities and make a list of the fluff, the tasks, the junk that doesn't fit in there and doesn't move them forward on who they want to be and cut that out of their life. Perfect. I love that. I really, you know, the, the thing about the priorities, when your priorities are in order then everything else is really easy and things fall into place. So Chris, I love that. This has been really awesome. A lot of great content here. I would encourage the audience actually to go back and re-listen to all this because there is so much deep information in this session. Chris, thank you so much for coming on today. And uh, guys, we will see you next time on the Ardella Training Podcast. Thanks for listening and take care. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the podcast this week. And if you'd like to become part of the Ardella Training community, be sure to go to ardellatraining.com forward slash join to get your free training mistakes guide, which contains 12 critical training mistakes I made through the years. I know this 36-page guide will save you time and frustration and accelerate your training results. And it's free. You'll get that and so much more at ardellatraining.com forward slash join. Hope to see you there.